The Walks Around Britain podcast is sponsored by Travel, the world leader for vehicle-specific dog guards, boot dividers, boot liners, rubber mats and more. Visit travel.co.uk to check out the product range for the car you drive. The best of the Walks Around Britain podcast. Hello and you're very welcome to the best of the Walks Around Britain podcast. I'm Andrew White and I'm your walking guide for the next 30 or so minutes of walking and outdoor chat. Our podcast started in 2012 and after taking a pause as we started our television series up, it is back once more providing a regular walking bag of outdoor and walking related features, reviews, destination suggestions and interviews. You can find us on all the major podcast platforms as well as on our website, walksaroundbritain.co.uk. We've a Pennine Way-themed programme this time, with two interviews about what was the very first national trail in Britain. In 2014, I was joined by two people who had walked this adventurous trek, Walker Rose Haken and writer Damien Hall, who wrote the official guidebook to the Pennine Way. Hello to both of you. So, Damien, tell me about the Pennine Way. Well, yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a big question. It's going to celebrate its 50th anniversary next year. And there's a, there's a quite well-known story, I think, about how it came into being when uh, two American girls wrote to a newspaper here saying, is there anything like in Britain like with the Appalachian Trail? And Tom Stevenson, who was a keen walker, you know, was a bit ashamed that there wasn't anything like that, but instantly thought, you know, the Pennines would make, uh, I think his quote was a uh, wild, entrancing trail. Um, and he campaigned for it for many years, it took something like 30 years for it to actually come about, which is a little bit shocking, really. And of course, it was the first national trail. There were quite a few more now. So how did you get on with the trail, Rose? I loved it. Um, I thought it was an epic adventure, really. I wanted to do it partly because of its history and because of it is the oldest national trail. Mm. And also, I think it's it's in need of a renaissance, really, because they've done so much work on it in the last few years to upgrade the paths and to lay flagstones across the, the boggy areas, which are many, so that I managed to get all the way from Edale to Coat Yetton without a muddy foot. Wow. Which is really, wow. you know, I thought that was pretty impressive, really, <laughs> because I'd heard rumours that up to well, this is these are old rumours, admittedly, but people used to say that you could end up up to your waist very easily in bog. Mm. One of the things I loved about walking it was um, there are various sort of myths. It has a really big reputation for being, you know, a very wet place, very boggy, and almost sort of because Alfred Wainwright fell in a bog and was we had to be risky. Hated it. Um, was it Black Hill, I think? <laughs> yeah, and, he, and his his guidebook, you know, yeah, he really didn't like the Pennine Way. And and there's also a couple of f- very funny books about walking the Pennine Way, which which do add to that reputation of it being incredibly tough and sort of unpleasant, basically. And But I'm, when I walked it, I just, it was absolutely wonderful in almost every way. I only got properly wet twice. I definitely got m- muddy footprints <laughs> quite a lot there, Rose. I don't know how you managed that. That's very impressive. <laughs> well, I did it in the end of June, beginning of July, Damien, so it was very okay. hot and dry. That was the problem that I had, actually, that it was too hot. This could be a problem, couldn't it, keeping hydrated. So where did you stay on route, Rose? Well, I stayed in lots of youth hostels and bunkhouses and a few small campsites. So you did a proper... A proper I did the proper self-supporting yeah. backpack. Because it, I, I got quotes for baggage transfer, and it was going to be 
I mean, I won't name names, but it was going to be in the region of £400. Good grief. To carry my camping kit, which, I mean, I, I hadn't... I only toyed with the idea. I thought, well, I'll see how much it would cost. And as soon as I got the quote, I thought, well, that's... I'd rather spend the £400 on a lighter kit that I can carry. Mm. Um, and so that it cha- that changed the course of the whole venture, really, that uh, single fact. So how did you do yours, Damien? I've actually done it twice now, but, but the second time was very different. But the first time I, I did it in two goes, slightly ashamed of that, but um, uh, it was in April two years ago, and it was very sunny and lovely. And I don't think I got wet at all. And, and again, I was staying at hostels. I, I actually carried a bivy bag, and I think I used it once, again, to my slight shame. And then I came back in, I think, September to, to, to what the, the rest of it up from, from, from Hawes. And I think I did get I get I got soaked twice overall, if I remember. But again, I was yes. staying in hostels. And the the one the only one tricky bit with that is when you come to the the, the Cheviot, it's about twenty eight miles I think in one go. And yes. I, I think that is you know that is manageable to some people. If you're really going to have to rush though, but some hostels in Byroness will sort of come and collect you and and then take you back to where you were again, and then you can sort of do it like that. Right. Um, in January. This year, I did something called the, the Spine Race, which is a foot race up the Pennine Way. And it basically, you've got seven days to try and complete it, which I just about managed, which was incredibly exciting and obviously a bit colder. But it, I mean, again, again, I saw it in a completely different way. You know, um, High Cup was covered in snow and, uh, you know, just absolutely magnificent. Crossfell was just as horrible, but still, you know, really exciting. And obviously Greg's Hut, that much more exciting to sort of find in, in amongst the snow. So that was a very different way of doing it. And obviously it was quite dark some of the time, so I didn't always see some of my favourite bits again. But um, And it was definitely a bit boggy. With all respect to Damien, he came fourth in the spine race, wow. which is a very impressive feat. That's fantastic. It was. Well, I, I do think it was... Fa- thank you. Um, I, I do think it was helpful to... To have known the route. I mean, um, some people would have wrecked bits of it, but it was sometimes, especially in the dark, where you couldn't see a sign and, and you know, you were tired. It, it really helped to think, oh, well, I'm pretty sure it's left of the bog here or right by the... Uh, and not through it, like rainlight. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> it, was, it was pretty pretty exciting, yeah. So, Rose, what was your most tricky section of the walk? Between Langdon Beck and Dufton, possibly. Which yeah. involved quite... There's a place called Falcon Clints, which is just a series of huge rocks along the side of a river. And you don't, I don't know if Damien remembers them, but you don't have the option really going round them because of the river. Mm. And so you kind of have to clamber over them. And then shortly after that, there's a quite, for me anyway, quite a tough scramble up the side of Cauldron Snout waterfall. And I I admit that I was nervous. I mean, you know, if I'd... If I'd put a foot wrong, I wouldn't have. It wouldn't have been a happy outcome, really, because I was on my own. You know, if I'd fallen, that would have been it, really. It is a very challenging route, isn't it? And it's not to be tackled lightly. No, I, I, I'm very glad that I, it wasn't my first walk, distance walk. I'm, mm. I'm glad that I'd had, you know, f- four walks to sort of prepare for it, because it really stretched my boundaries as a as a hiker. And I'm sure it must have stretched uh, Damien's as well, running it, because, you know, it's a very tough, tough old walk. It's a tough old walk, and it got the better of quite a few people that I passed on the way. And I I have to thank the people on Twitter who gave me tons of advice and 
I put my podiatrist <laughs> <laughs> me through and my physio, you know, I got, I was given all these exercises to kind of keep me, keep me going and keep me t- sort of supple, stop me stiffening up. And that's, that's what got me through. It is often said that with a long distance walk, it's not the first day that's the worst. It's not the second, but it's the third and the fourth days when it really starts to eat into you. Would that be your experiences, do you think? It is my experience, certainly, um, particularly if you haven't warmed up. Mm. You know, if you haven't been gradually building up your exercise routine uh, before you start, it always hits me on the third day. And unfortunately for me, I think if there was a depressing day on the Pennine Way, then there's only one, and that's the third day. Yes. Where you cross the M62. I've often heard that, yes. It's just, and there's sort of telephone. I don't want to put anybody off, but <laughs> stunning after that. If you persevere through the third day, it it just gets better and better. I've actually got a um, alternative um, least favourite section. Much as I uh, loathed to, to talk negatively about about sort of my my favourite national trail, and I was just thinking to, to answer your question as well, Andrew. I'm often sort of guided by the landscapes into how tough I'm finding it. It's often mental for me in that I remember not enjoying walking alongside reservoirs very much because it's, it can be incredibly mm. flat and stony. If your feet are a little bit tender, I can, I'd rather a, where the landscape's changing and, and often that, those moors are often actually quite c- kind to your feet um, and, unless there's flagstones, I suppose. But, um, but there's actually a section later on after Alston that um, is probably my least favourite. There's just, for some reason that I, I haven't fully, fully looked into, you sort of stay down in the valley you can sort of see the hills on either side of you and you sort of think, I want to be up on the hills. But also it's just very fiddly and there's a lot mm. of sort of farm fields and a lot of navigation. Too, yeah. It's a fiddly section and, and, you're, and you're quite tired and you're not on the hilltops either. And I just remember finding that section. It's Alston to... Greenhead. Greenhead, yeah, that would be it. And then Greenhead's wonderful because you're up on, you're up on Hadrian's Wall and you're like, wow, this is, you know, this is, this is incredible. But um, that little section is, gets me down a bit, little bit, if anywhere does, yeah. You're right. In you know the bits where the scenery is stunning, you don't it, you don't you never find it particularly hard, because my jaw was just open for a lot of the stretches really, and I didn't think for a moment about how tired I was at places like High Cup Nick and Hadrian's Hall and High mm-hmm. Force, and you know they were easy in the as you say mentally, because there was just so much to see and be impressed by really in the scenery. So it's really easy to start the walk. You can easily get to Edale on the train. How do you get back to where you need to be after you finish the walk at Kirk Yetham? You get a very small country bus that runs every two and a half hours. Um, <laughs> to, well, this, the way I did it anyway uh, was I got the bus to Kelso. Hmm. Um, and then I had a, a fair old wait at Kelso for a bus to Berwick. Yes. you can either get another bus um, which uh, I pondered doing to Newcastle in my case or you can hop on the train luckily Berwick is on the main line from London to Edinburgh indeed so it's two buses to the main line trains basically how did you do it Damien I think I think it was a similar journey I did manage to get home to I live just outside Bath I did manage to get all the way home in fairly good time, like maybe late afternoon. I think I did. There was a bus the very next morning. I think Sundays are definitely tricky. I wouldn't want to finish from Pennine Way Saturday and then and then sort of wake up on the Sunday and think, right, I want to get home. Um, <laughs> but I think the rest of the week there are a few buses, and I did. You know, I caught one fairly early, maybe you know, maybe before eight o'clock, and I was home in fairly good time. So 
I, I did think that was sort of one of the myths of the Pennine Way that, that was sort of half half busted in that, you know, you're, you sort of end up in the middle of nowhere and can't escape. Um, but I think as long as you don't try and escape on a Sunday, then I, th- I think you should, and are prepared to get up at a reasonable time. You might, uh, might you may well think you've earned yourself a good lion when you've finished. Better my, to be um, on the bus on your way home, isn't it? It probably is, yeah. Um, one of my favourite little anecdotes was, you know, the border hotel there where everyone, you know, with a traditional endpoint and... Um, Originally, Alfred Wainwright um, put some money behind the bar there so that everyone who finished the Penang Way could, could get a drink for free on him. The pubs still honour that themselves, and they pay free a, a free half. Yeah, I, I claim um, my drink. Fantastic. It is. Good for you. Well, I, I, I walked the whole thing um, thinking I would get a free half at the end. But, of course, I did the first time around, I did it in two goes. And I, was, I strode confidently into the bar sort of saying, um, right, you know, I've, I've walked it all. Um, they said, oh, actually, it's, you, you have to do it in one go, which was a bit crestfallen about. <laughs> I did ask the barman, I said, I said, um, how can you tell if someone's not fibbing? You know, what if someone just walks in and goes, oh, I've just walked the pen away. so exhausted. Well, that's why he, he said, oh, <laughs> you can tell, he said. And of course, you guys now have to do it all again. And this time, not stop at Kirk Yatham, but continue all the way on the new Gore-Tex National Trail, all the way up to Cape Roth. Well, that would, that would be a very exciting thing to do. Um, I would love to... Um, I would love to do that. I, I suppose I always see when I retire. I always see the first thing I want to do is walk sort of Lands End, John O'Groats, and, and that would that would be the way I would um, probably do it. But if I can do find a way section. to do that, yeah, I think so. If I could find a way to do that before then, I, I very happily would. A guidebook is probably required for the whole thing. <laughs> yes, <laughs> Rose, Damien, thanks for coming on the podcast today. Oh, thank you very much for having us. The Walks Around Britain podcast is brought to you by Travel, the world-leading manufacturer and retailer of vehicle-specific dog guards, boot dividers, boot liners, rubber mats and more. Adding travel products enables you to get out and enjoy walking adventures with friends, family and dogs so that everybody enjoys the journey. Travel offers the best fit guarantee of any brand when purchasing direct through their website or your money back. Visit travel.co.uk to see the product range available for the car you drive. In 2015, the explorer Paul Rose made a series for the BBC about the 50th anniversary of the Pennine Way. And he joined me then to talk about it. The Pennine Way was the first national trail in the UK. And in 2015, it celebrates its 50th anniversary. It might not be the longest trail in the country, that honour goes to the southwest coast path, but the Pennine Way is probably the most well-known. Well, earlier in the year, BBC One throughout the north of England broadcast a special series of programmes presented by the polar adventurer and ocean diver Paul Rose, discovering this most challenging of routes. Now the series is being broadcast to the whole of the UK on BBC Two, and for us in the north of England, it's the first chance to see the programmes in HD. And I'm pleased to say that Paul joins me now from Geneva, of all places. Paul, welcome to the podcast. So we here in the north of England have already seen it, yes. but the rest of the country hasn't yet. What can they expect from this series? Well, I think they're after some big surprises. I mean, even those of us up in the north, we know what the Pennine Way is all about. And yet, as soon as I got started on it, I was amazed by lots of things. The sense of wildness, the sense of adventure how difficult it can be, but also what, how much energy-giving this thing can be. So I 
figure that it, it surprised me and it was a thing that I constantly bumped into uh, while I was on the walk is that I assume that it will surprise the rest of the nation even more. The Pennine Way has got such a history, hasn't it, as the first national trail and the fact it starts in Edale in the middle of our first national park, the Peak District. Yes, I think it's absolutely great. I mean, here we've got, it was one man's passion, one man's dream to make this happen. And it took, you know, 30 years, you know, Tom Stevenson, he got that letter from these ladies that had walked the Appalachian Trail, basically said, you know, what have we got in England that is similar to that? Because we had nothing. People, the likes of me, weren't allowed to go up on the on the high fells. It was something that was uh, for the landed gentry and uh, farm owners. And so, of course, you know, he took that on as a as a big challenge. It took him 30 years to to get this into place, and uh, thank heavens he did. And at the time when this idea came about, it wasn't too long after the Kinder Mass Trespass. So the yeah. movement was growing there for, for more access to wild places. But it did take a long time for the powers that be to change. Yes, exactly. And the Kinder Trespass, and you know, when you're on the uh, Pennine Way on the first day, as you leave Edale, you go up uh, along the side and you can see Kinder Scout right up there with the, the great Mass Trespass and everything. And, and there's a wonderful story that when the Pennine Way was opened, uh, they all went up there for the great opening ceremony. And they were, even then, um, when the Pennine Way had been approved and it was in and it had all been finally agreed, tensions were really red hot because they were having fights up there with some of the rangers and uh, landowners to try and keep them away. So wow. you know, it was a really tense time. So this is a major trail, and it's not to be undertaken lightly, is it? Very true. I mean, it's 268 miles, and and I haven't done the whole thing. I mean, it was just impossible. We did think at some point that the way for me to do it would be to walk the whole thing and see who I bumped into on the way. But in the ways of television, we realised that the only way we could meet the right people at the right time was for me to do it in sections. So I just did it in bursts. I know I've done the very best bits, and um, um, I'm, I, I don't wonder if I've, if I've actually walked further than the 268 miles because we were doing it in bits and starts and various bits over the whole of the summer. Yes. But, but either way, it is. It's a real challenge. I mean, it's a real full-on challenge. And I use the same skills that I use in Antarctica and Greenland and all these other remote places that I work in doing the Pennine Way. You've still got to be able to be a, a decent navigator. You've got to know your limits. You've got to be fit. You need to know what to do when the weather goes down. And even though you might have uh, a good phone signal for one good section, doesn't mean you'll have a good phone signal five minutes later. Yes. So you've still got to be able to, you know, really use your wits. And it, it's a real, it's a physical and mental challenge, no doubt about it. The enthusiasm that you had for the trail really came through in this series, and it was very contagious. And people are starting out on the Pennine Way every day. Yes, exactly. And I think that's the way to do it, is to approach it with a high degree of enthusiasm and don't let purchasing the right waterproof jacket or the right pair of boots put you off. I think you're better off just to get started and have a good go at it. I mean, you can do it in the sort of purist style, which is start at Edel and go all the way to Kurt Yutton. Don't stop. Carry a tent. Be very independent and you have the freedom to stop and start anywhere you like. But of course, it takes a, a bit longer, you know, between two and three weeks. You're carrying heavy loads, but you do have complete freedom. Yes. And then there's the way most people do it these days, which is stop at bed and breakfast, because you don't have to carry too much gear. You're certainly not carrying a tent. And the bed and breakfasts and hotels and pubs on the way are really set up for uh, drying your boots, drying your socks, and providing you with 
vast quantities of really great food. And then you can make that even easier by having someone carry your gear. That's like a little porterage service. There's a few of them working the Pennine Way now, and they'll take your overnight bag and plop it up to your next point of stay. So that means that you really are carrying a very, very light pack indeed. And you can leave your dinner jacket if you want in your overnight stuff. So you can <laughs> be living a fairly high life at the bed and breakfast pubs and hotels whilst traveling next to nothing. And then the, the other way of doing it, of course, is do it in little bursts, you know, do it on weekends and, you know, even sort of a, a Friday night, do a, do a few hours and gradually chip away and you'll get hooked. I mean, I guarantee people get hooked and do the whole walk by doing it in um, small sections. So either way, people can get it done. But either way, people do have to remember it's still a good old challenge. Well, people do the Munros in Scotland and the Rainwrights in the lakes in, in just that way, don't they? They, they? The people who plan out to complete the Pennine Way over months or even years. Yes, I love to meet those people because I met people on the walk who had done it in every possible way you can imagine. I think that, but I do remember this one guy who'd walked the whole thing and he'd got to Kurt Yetham, had a beer and was so excited he was going to walk all the way home rather than get on the train. <laughs> <laughs> I met another man who was doing it for his 19th time. He'd done, wow. he'd done it 16 times, and he was on his 19th time. And people get hooked on it, you know, there's no doubt. And other people I met were doing it in little bursts, you know, um, as you say, just like doing the Scottish Munros or the Wainwrights in the Lake District. They were going out and doing a section, and then the following weekend doing another section, and gradually chipping off um, the whole of the Pennine Way in in nice, manageable, um, easy-to-arrange bites. Now, you and I are very used to getting out walking, you obviously much more so in, in, in the wild areas, but television film crews aren't known for getting into the outdoors very often. How did the crew cope with the experience? <laughs> well, we did really well because we weren't a very big crew. I mean, the, the BBC crew, we were... At any given point, only three of us, and that was um, right. the genius Paul Greenan, who is the director, producer from uh, BBC Leeds, who came up with the idea in the first place. So he was always there. Um, and then there was uh, one of uh, three cameramen there and myself. So we were light. So we could generally put up with anything. It was a bit tricky in some special places. I mean, not everybody on the team was comfortable caving. You know, <laughs> is it going to be all right caving? Are we going to get stuck in? You know, what's it like to go caving? And then things like when it just got cold and windy and miserable, we're all as cold and windy as, and miserable as everybody else. So it wasn't too bad. I mean, we, we're, I think we were a bit tougher than an average BBC film crew might be. We had to be careful with gear. Um, I mean, on the special section, say the, the, the canoeing, uh, we used uh, GoPros, which, are, which are, you know, are completely waterproof and very rugged and all that. But when we were underground or climbing or outside then you know just keeping the gear charged up dry and not full of dust for instance is is an important thing but we did really well because i'm working with a really experienced team you know some some of the world's best and a, a bit of rain or, or sideways dust blowing isn't going to stop them my granddad used to call that an idle wind this is all that goes straight through you <laughs> And there can be a lot of that, because after all, these are wild places. And yes. we tend to think that there can't be extremely wild places left in Britain, because we're always told that it's, it's very small and too crowded. But, but nothing is further from the truth, really. Yes, it's well, well said that. I mean, you know, people do feel that while Britain has turned into quite a crowded and it's still a very small country, 
can there be any wild places left? But indeed, there they are. And what's particularly great about the Pennine Way is the valleys and the roads through it and around it can be pretty dense and you can be stuck in traffic and, you know, almost begin to feel sort of claustrophobic Mm. in those uh, industrial valleys. And then a very short time later, you're on top of a hill or walking along a farm track with a real great sense of exposure and wildness and, a, and the spirit of adventure and, and sheer beauty of nature. And it, it, it sort of reinforces why we need these places even more and why we should celebrate and indeed protect them uh, because they are so valuable in a busy country like Britain. And it's interesting to think that the people who walked the Pennine Way in those first years wouldn't have thought that they would eventually be walking over one of Britain's busiest motorways. <laughs> yes. I mean, when, when the Pennine Way was, was put in, they had, had to make arrangements for people to walk over it, or walk over the M62. And in them days, you know, who would have thought it would be quite so busy? I mean, it's a lovely bit out that on the walk, and I've done it, I've done it a number of times now, um, that part of the walk, and it's really great to come across that lovely open moor and suddenly realise, holy smokes, it's the M62, and here's a, here's a bridge specially for us walkers. Those two bridges over the motorway there, the, the, the one for the Pennine Way and the other one carrying the B Road, the, the Scamondon Bridge, which was the longest single-span non-suspension bridge in the world when it was built. I think, I think they are, are works of outstanding design and beauty. Yes, I agree with you. I, I, think, I think they're great pieces of work, and there's something quite celebratory about walking across there, thinking, you know what, this, this is a nice piece of work, and it's put across a very busy motorway, and it's put there just so that people can walk. I think that, that's really good. <laughs> I think that shows we've got the priorities in the right place. What would be your collective memories from the filming of the series? Well, the memories were being surprised. I mean, I've spent, I live in Windermere, Cumbria, um, which is only 30-odd miles from the Pennine Way, and I've spent my whole life working in remote, challenging regions and seeking them out, um, if not for work, then for pleasure, and that's where I go. I love to go to the wild places. And crazily, I'd overlooked a really world-class adventure more or less on my front door. So that was the main thing. It's just how how close it is and how wonderful it is. And then that's that was reinforced by me meeting people on it. I mean, I met people from Canada, from the States, from all over the world who were doing this walk and had heard about it and come. And it, everybody said it was living up to their expectations. Everyone was enjoying it. I really loved meeting the guy who had done the whole thing and then had had a beer at Kurt Yetterman was walking all the way back again. Mm. I think he started somewhere around Leeds. Um, you know, what a great man, you know, and he was camping too, so he was having a pretty good load. And the guy who was on his 19th time, I think I've got the numbers right, I think he completed it 15 times, hadn't made it three times, so that makes 18, and then he was on his sort of 19th. And he was a great man, you know, and, the, the great thing with him is that when he wasn't walking the pen on way, his job was a postman, so he walks for a living, you know. <laughs> <laughs> That's a real busman's holiday. Yes, exactly. Lovely, yes. And he, I asked him what had changed about the walk, and he said, well, he said, it's, it's a bit easier because it's better signposted. The bogs have got boardwalks on and flagstones, and so the route itself has been improved. And he said the people are friendlier than they ever used to be, and the beer is better. <laughs> Paul, thanks for coming on our podcast. You're very welcome. Take it easy, Andrew. That's it for another programme. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, please find us on your favourite podcast provider or visit podfollow.com 
forward slash walks around Britain. And if you are a walker or wanting to get outside more to go walking, then there's Walking Inspiration 24-7 on our Netflix for Walking subscription website Walks Around Britain Plus, which has all our television programmes available in HD whenever you want. Visit our website for a seven-day free trial. And don't forget to follow us on social media. You'll find us on Twitter, Facebook, Insta, Pinterest and YouTube. Until next time, thanks for listening and happy walking. The Walks Around Britain podcast is sponsored by Travel, the world leader for vehicle-specific dog guards, boot dividers, boot liners, rubber mats and more. Visit travel.co.uk to check out the product range for the car you drive.